God and Father, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for the opportunity that we've had to be in your presence. We gather as your people for worship. And we pray now that you would be with us as we uh, consider the topic of science and what the Word teaches us and what we can learn from uh, the world around us and the creation that you've given us. We pray that you give us wisdom to understand and also that we might remember some of the things that we'd be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks us the reason for the hope that is in us. We pray these things, trusting in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, okay, so this is the last class in this uh, short uh, four-class four series on science. And I'd like to start by reading this quote I put at the top of the handout. The ancients busied themselves more with metaphysics than with epistemology. Uh, remember, metaphysics is the philosophy of reality as such. Epistemology is the philosophy of knowledge. So the ancients busied themselves more with metaphysics than with epistemology. And that it is in modern times that epistemology comes to the foreground is due to the fact that modern thought is more mature than ancient thought. The ancients all too often took knowledge for granted. The modern man studies the possibility of knowledge. It is but natural then that we should expect that it will be in modern times that the full significance of the life and death struggle between the theistic and the anti-theistic conceptions of epistemology will appear. That's from Cornelius Van Til. Survey of Christian epistemology in 1969. So, the review, remember in the first class, I put in the handout this two by two grid, and on the, the columns were the Christian and the non Christian, and the rows were the theoretical and the historical. We took one class for each of those sections. So, in the first class, we looked at some of the positive um, ideas that we learn from the Bible that help us generate a Christian view of science. In the second class, we reviewed some of the great historical uh, ancient pagan cultures and how, because of their worldviews, they failed to give rise to a self-sustaining science. Then, in the last class, which is two weeks ago now, we looked at the rise of science in the 15th and 16th centuries and the ideas of the Protestant Reformation that were paralleled in the scientific revolution so that the, the reformers were going back to the word of God as the revelation of the creator unmediated by these ancient interpretations. And so in the same way, that's what we're doing in the scientific revolution so that those early scientists considered themselves also to be involved in the reformation. So today, the last class, I want to look at the history of, of thought in the West, and as, as you know, as we mentioned here, the prevailing intellectual in the West is postmodernism, which is a highly skeptical, pessimistic uh, system or, or, or view of knowledge in which uh, basically knowledge and opinion can't can be distinguished. I would say that's sort of bottom line with uh, It's just competing viewpoints and opinions, but there's no 
transcendence that could adjudicate between different opinions. So we're about to go skepticism. And what I want to look at today is how did we get there? And, and the major intellectual, uh, philosophical events that took place in history of thought to get us to this point, and how do those impact our view of science? So, um, as we've looked at the, we looked a little bit at Greek science, and uh, no, there, there was no culture in the ancient world that made more incredible intellectual achievements and artistic achievements, cultural achievements, than the Greeks. And the Greeks did have a commitment, especially Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, had a commitment to human reason. They believed in the authority of human reason, but they also believed in the sufficiency of had no external revelation from God to ground their view of human reason. And what happened in Greece is that within just a few hundred years, Greek philosophy had run its course so that um, by the time Euclid wrote his Elements, which was about three hundred years before Christ, Greek thought had pretty much regenerated into Greek skepticism. And the, the, the legend or the story is that you know, uh, Socrates was Plato's teacher, Plato was Aristotle's teacher, Aristotle was Alexander the Great's teacher, and when Alexander the Great went to Egypt, he was accompanied by another one of Aristotle's students named Pyrrho, who supposedly encountered some Buddhist monks in India and spent time with them, and as we discussed, Buddhism, ultimate reality is a video, Buddhists are not trying to, um, they're not trying to arrive at truth, they're trying to empty their minds through meditation and things like that. And Pyrrho goes back to Greece and establishes his school of a very radical brand of skepticism called Pyrrhonian skepticism. And his, famously, his, his line is, I can't know anything than that. So he's saying, there's, there's no way to know anything. I can, it's not even possible for me to know that I can't know anything. Please tell your skepticism. So that's what happened in Greece. Now, uh, Christian thought in the Middle Ages is heavily influenced by Greek thought, and the Roman Church believes, and still teaches, that sin basically doesn't affect the intellect. We can reason our way to God effectively apart from revelation. Now, Luther remember, says, unless I can be convinced by scripture and plain reasoning, I will not recant. So Luther and the reformers after him are denying the sufficiency of human reason. They're saying, I have this faculty of human reason, and that's like having eyes, but I need the light of revelation to be able to see. So, um, even, even if my eyes are working perfectly, if the lights are out, that doesn't help me. I can't see anything. So, the, in, the, in the tradition of the Protestant Reformation, the West had a view of reason that was grounded in the revelation of a rational God who revealed himself and spoke to human beings in human language, and the West became a uniquely rational culture. And we got science, and we got political freedom, and we got universal education, and uh, all the things now that we tend to take for granted. Um, and I meant to say it in the beginning, but I'll, I'll say it now. Uh, the, 
picture I have in my mind of what's happened in the West is I'm always reminded of, of the parable of the prodigal son. So for the prodigal son uh, takes his father's inheritance and goes away to a foreign land and he you know, dissipates his father's inheritance and lacks with it. So the picture I have is the prodigal son with all this money he got from his father but living in this foreign land. And that's what I think the unbelieving West had is that they had the cultural riches of the Protestant Reformation and a biblical worldview, but they decided they wanted all that from God. And what has happened in the last few hundred years is the West has used up its intellectual capital, and, and that is how we're in the position we're in now, that it's getting harder and harder to justify any of those things that the Western culture uh, is, is known for and it was built on because the West has rejected the God of the Bible. So that was the background in terms of the Reformation. Now, the first uh, modern philosopher I want to talk about is René Descartes. He's a French philosopher. He's writing in the early to mid uh, 17th century. So he's about 100 years after Luther. And Descartes says, well, we're all Christians, right? You know, this says we're all Christians here, and we all believe in the Bible, but there are actually, believe it or not, there's some people who don't believe in the Bible. And so we can't ground our knowledge in biblical revelation because that won't be satisfactory to the atheists who are out there. So what Descartes wants to do is he sets out to establish a certain foundation for knowledge. He wants to find a certain foundation for knowledge independent of God's revelation so that it will be compelling to the unbelievers. And the way he goes about this is he's going to start doubting everything he can doubt. He's going to keep doubting and keep doubting until he gets to something that he finds he cannot doubt. And when he finds something he cannot doubt, then that will be the, the, the ground of certainty that he will build from there to all the rest of the knowledge, including science and biblical revelation. So he's, he's writing, he says, you know, I think about the fact that I'm dreaming, and in my dream, I see something that's real, and I wake up, and I realize that what I thought was real isn't real, so I know that my senses can deceive me. And he goes through this whole process of doubting everything, until he comes to say that what I can doubt is that I am the one who is doubting. So even if everything outside of me is an illusion, presented by some uh, evil genius, but I still know that I am the one who's doubting. So this quote I have here on page two, he says, but I have convinced myself there is absolutely nothing in the world, no sky, no earth, no minds, no bodies. Does it now follow that I too do not exist? No. If I convince myself of something or thought anything at all, then I certainly exist. But there is a deceiver, a supreme power, a cunning who is deliberately and constantly deceiving me. In that case, I too undoubtedly exist if he is deceiving me. And let him deceive me as much as he can, he will never bring it about that I am nothing, so long as I think that I am something. So after considering everything very thoroughly, I must finally conclude that the proposition I am, I exist, is necessarily true whenever it is put forward by me or conceived by my mind. 
this cognitive database from a big part. I think, therefore, I am. He's saying, I can doubt everything outside of me, but I cannot doubt the fact that I am the one doing the job. The reason this is significant is because, as far as I know, for the first time in intellectual history, Descartes is saying that the ground of certain final and ultimate ground of certainty in knowledge is not something outside of me, it is within my mind, it is my consciousness. Now, the problem is that in that proposition, I think, therefore I am, you'll notice that his conclusion is in his premise. And that's what other philosophers are going to point out later. You say, I think, you've already assumed this subject, this I. Is, uh, is logically justified. 
He's not saying that it doesn't work. He's not saying that it leads to falsehood. What he's saying is we can't account for this. We can't justify this. Now, uh, one of the most astounding things that I've experienced in my life is that as far as I can tell, it is strictly impossible to get a scientist to understand the force of David Kinsey's on the cross. They just Consciousness 
that are imputed to external reality. So space and time, cause and effect, these are not things that are out of the world, it's just the way our mind works, and our minds impose those structures on reality, and that's how our experience is mediated. So um, he's saying that it's not that our knowledge is not coming from things outside of us to our mind, rather our mind is creating the, the reality as we experience it. So what the, the, the significance of this is that whereas Descartes is saying, um, Descartes is, is coming to a place of epistemological skepticism. He's saying the ground of certainty is not outside of us, it's within us. Kant is saying that not only is my mind the source of certainty in experience, Kant's saying my mind is the source of the experience itself. It's not even something outside of me that is causing the, 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 the experience that I have. It's my mind that is uh, completely determining the way in which I experience reality. Kant's notoriously difficult. Does that kind of make sense? You can see how we're moving to a more and more subjectivist uh, view of reality from where Descartes started. That's, that's kind of where my, my question was, does Kant still think that that people still see things in the same way because of their worldview or whatever that's all forming us to think in the same direction? Or does he already think that everybody has their own individual reality? No, he's not going there because Kant is very committed to human reason as a universal uh, property. So, in fact, when he goes to ethics, Kant wants to ground ethics in human reason such that it's necessary because he's assuming that all humans have this faculty of reason. And so he would not go in the direction of everyone experiencing reality differently because he sees us all as possessing. Natural law or whatever is in place. I'm sorry. Like, is there a, there's like a, so does he see that as like a, a, a natural law or a, like, how, how is, it's um, just our culture that is driving Well, no, because I think Kant's still a deist. I don't think he would deny it later. He's certainly not, uh, you know, in, in the Christian tradition. I mean, Certainly not, we would not consider him an Orthodox Christian, but he probably still sees us as created. Um, yeah, so I would, I would say that. I don't, I don't think he's, he's not looking at natural law like Aristotle or something So that's kind of where the Enlightenment ended up. Now, fast forwarding to the, to the 20th century, we have the Vienna Serpa. This is in the interwar period in Austria, and some of the greatest minds of the 20th century are in Austria at that time, some of the greatest economists, scientists, philosophers, and a group of them gets together and forms this, uh, what's known as the Vienna Circle. So some of them, you may have heard of Rudolf Carnap, Hans Hahn, Moritz Schlick, and Kurt Gödel. Kurt Gödel, the logician. Um, and 
Vienna Circle became famous for propounding what they called logical positivism. And the reason why I like to present this is because I do believe this was the last time that scientists and philosophers were working together and able to attempt to put something forward that they agreed on philosophically. It's called logical positivism. They say that the premise of logical positivism is that a statement is meaningful only if it can, in principle, be verified by either empirical investigation or logical analysis of the words of grammar. So they're saying the only statements that are meaningful are ones we could directly observe in principle or we just um, can figure this figure out by the definition of the word. Bill is a bachelor, then that's okay in logical positivism because bachelor just means you know, the word means he's a single, he's a single guy, and so that can be true. But otherwise, it has to be something we can empirically verify. What they're trying to do, what they want to do, is they want to get God out of the realm of intelligible or meaningful conversation. And notice this is a very, it's a very uh, it's a very aggressive proposition because they're not saying they're not saying it's not true. They're not saying it's not knowable. They're saying it's not meaningful. So if I'm a logical positivist and you come to me as a Christian and say, I believe that God created the world and that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross as the atoning sacrifice for my sin. As a logical positivist, I'm going to say those words don't even have meaning. It's not that it's not that they're false. It's not that you know I should disagree with you. That's not even a meaningful sentence. So it's an extremely uh, aggressive and totalizing view of knowledge. It's it's an attack on transcendence itself. So now we can't say anything about ethics. We can't say anything about history. We can only speak about things that we could, in principle, directly observe. Now, the problem with positivism is that it was very short-lived. It lasted about three to four years, and then it just became like a famous example in undergraduate philosophy. Because the problem with logical positivism is that it fails its own criteria. That's called self-referential incoherence, right? Because the proposition that meaningful statements, the only meaningful statements are the ones that could be empirically verified, that proposition itself cannot be empirically verified. So this kind of blew up in their faces in philosophy. Um, and it's kind of embarrassing, right? Because if you, you know, you might have a philosophy and maybe it's weak. If it's weak, prove it, it'll make it better. Might be wrong. Well, hey, however, it's wrong. If your philosophy refutes itself, that's kind of the worst thing that can happen to it. So, in philosophy, logical positivism became, I mean, as close as possible to a literal joke in philosophy. But the scientists literally didn't get the memo. And this is what, I'm not making this up, this is what they believe to this day. I've seen, I've 
not only repeatedly had professors in classrooms say we can only know what we can what we can observe, what we can measure. I even I heard it referred to by name as a logical model. So my one professor in Arizona said modern scientists now believe in this philosophy of logical probabilism. And I've also seen it in textbooks. They just specifically say logical probabilism. I've never had anyone uh, like even know or even be aware of the problem with it or what, what happened historically, why that can't possibly be taken seriously by philosophers today. But that's the point where science and philosophy parted ways in history in the West. So the scientists thought that logical probabilism, which is a self-recreating, incoherent, illogical system. The philosophers went on to do what the rest of what we got in the rest of the 20th century, but uh, which is postmodernism, as you know. What I want to focus on here is the, the ongoing, from that point on, the ongoing relationship, which is what is known now as the science wars. So, uh, the first thing in uh, 1959, there's a, a physicist, and I can't remember now if he's at Oxford or Cambridge. One of, one of the, one of the uh, British universities. He's also a baron, so it's you know, in our society in the UK. And he's, he's, a, he's a professor of physics, but he's also a novelist. He writes this long series of novels, which uh, apparently were not good novels, but he was, did well enough that he was kind of able to move within the circles of the literary intellectuals as well as the scientists. Gives this talk in 1959, or writes a paper called The Two Cultures. And he says, I have a few quotes from his paper. He says, For constantly I felt I was moving among two groups, comparable in intelligence, identical in race, not grossly different in social origin, earning about the same incomes, who had almost ceased to communicate at all, who in intellectual, moral, and psychological climate had so little in common that instead of going from Burlington House or Southampton to Chelsea, one might have crossed ocean. And he says, I believe the intellectual life of the whole of Western society is increasingly being split into two polar groups. And he gives an example of how he was in this uh, group of literary intellectuals who were kind of making fun of scientists, and he asked them something like, you know, do you know what the three laws of thermodynamics are? And they didn't have a clue what he was talking about. He says, I now believe that if I ask an even simpler question, such as, what do you mean by mass or acceleration, which is the scientific equivalent of saying, can you read? Not more than one in ten of the highly educated would have felt that I was speaking the same language. So the great edifice of modern physics goes up, and the majority of the cleverest people in the Western world have about as much insight into it as their Neolithic ancestors would have. This is a common theme when scientists, on the very rare occasions where they notice what's going on in philosophy, they're always pointing out, like, you know, we've at least read Kant, we've read Descartes, you guys wouldn't know an ordinary differential equation if you saw it. You don't even know what that is, but long enough solved. So there's this um, there's this parity between the, the, the scientists see between how even when they try to take the philosophy and the literary intellectual seriously, that's not reciprocated. So he says, the separation between the scientists and non-scientists 
nice downside that was much less critical among the young than it was even 30 years ago. 30 years ago, the cultures had long since ceased to speak to each other, but at least they managed to kind of frozen smile across the gulf. Now the politeness is gone and they just make faces. So after 1959, they just make faces, uh, but it only got worse from there and uh, started to come open warfare. So the next, the next thing from Thomas Kuhn, three years later in 1962, he writes this very famous book called The Structure of Scientific Revolution. And basically, I'll try to summarize this quickly for the sake of time, but basically, the sort of the received, before Kuhn, the picture of science is this gradual building up, this cumulative building up, uh, improving you know, experiments that give rise to better and better theories, and science just advances in this linear way of progress, getting better and better. All Kuhn claims is that actually what's going on in the history of science is that everyone's working within a paradigm. And the paradigm is a set of assumptions values or beliefs that determine how the science comes about. So he's saying it's not actually the results of experiments that drive what science believes, it's that the, the paradigm and the assumptions that the scientists have determine how they interpret science. And so Kuhn sees science as just uh, a sequence of revolutions in which someone's committed to, you know, the, the science community is committed to a specific paradigm adaptation, but then there's anomalies that come up, and uh, this kind of creates some uh, uncomfortableness within that community, and eventually that paradigm can't be sustained, and that paradigm collapses, and a new paradigm, completely compatible with the old paradigm, is set up, and that becomes a new science. And then what they do is they rewrite the history books to make it look like it was just this cumulative, ongoing series of system problems. So, this is kind of an attack on uh, sort of optimistic view of science as this ever-progressing buildup. But like I say, it is probably one of the most influential books and in, uh, arguments in the 20th century. And there's some real value for Christians and Kuhn because he's, he's acknowledging that the presupposition and the context and the personal biases of scientists are very influential in the results and the conclusions. Um, but obviously, he is moving, you know, not being a Christian, he's moving in, in the direction of relativism. Now, one of my favorite ones here, 1974, uh, Paul Fire, who is a philosopher of science, I think at UC Berkeley, uh, he writes an article called How to Defend Society Against Science. And this I recommend, it is a very humorous read, I recommend download this and read it as many as you find online. How to defend society against science. He says, I was asked to contribute an article to a volume on science and religion. And he said, I needed money, so I decided to take the, the offer. And he says, I wanted to uh, bring as much attention to it as I possibly could, so I decided to write an article on science is a And he says that he wants to defend society against all ideologies, including science. He says, ideologies are like fairy tales that contain many useful things, but also different lies. He says, originally, science was at the forefront of the project against authoritarianism and superstition. And he says that ideologies can help overthrow 
comprehensive system with God, but then they can also degenerate to this individual God. So he argues that nowadays we teach scientific facts to very young children, just like we used to teach religious facts. And he says everything, you know, we criticize everything in society, we don't criticize scientists. He says that things that scientists say or receive like just like judgments of bishops and cardinals in the ancient times and he said that basically science has become impressive ideology inhibiting freedom of thought and he wants science to be taught in schools balanced by magicians and priests and astrologers. So and it is funny to read because he writes that it's very uh, very humorous. Uh, in fact, says, I don't object to incompetence. What I object to is incompetence coupled with self-righteousness. <laughs> so then, uh, now in the meantime, I forgot to put this in the notes and I'm annoyed because I don't now I don't know, uh, I don't have the exact date, but I mentioned it in an earlier class. About the same time, Eugene Wigner, who is a Hungarian physicist, one of the best in the history, one of the you know, one of the fathers of quantum mechanics who was with Einstein and Gödel and Norman at the founding of the Advanced Institute of Princeton, he writes an article called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics in the Physical Sciences. And I'll, I'll, I'm going to send this uh, handout to Dan as a PDF. I'll add that into the handout. Um, so this is going on in parallel with philosopher, but physicist, he says now, uh, Notice that we get really good agreement between mathematics and what we observe in physical reality. And he says it's not just that, but he gives examples of where some mathematical theory has been developed, and we don't, like, without any application, for instance, nature theory was discovered and started to develop, and there was no application in physical science. And then Quantum mechanics came along and found that quantum mechanics can be uh, understood in terms of nature theory. So we develop this mathematics and then find out later that it corresponds to some part of physical reality that we're studying in physics. So this is amazing. He says, and he, his quote is at the end of the article, he says uh, basically that the correspondence that we see between mathematics physical reality is something ordered on the mysterious, and there is no rational explanation. He's an unbeliever, so obviously he has decided ahead of time that the Bible could not be the source of the correspondence between our human consciousness and mathematics and the physical reality, but that's what he concludes. So this is going on, the philosophers are just attacking science, and then in 1996, the scientists really started to go on offensive. First, with Alan Sokol, who publishes an article in one of the premier uh, cultural studies journals of the 90s. And he writes a parody article saying, because he's a, he's a, he's a quantum, he's, he studies quantum gravitation at the University of Sydney, very uh, esoteric branch of theoretical physics.
postmodern feminist epistemologies. Uh, and at the same time, he publishes an expose in this other French journal called Le Monde, in which he reveals the hoax. So this article is accepted, published, and simultaneously, he published an article saying, I, I absolutely disguise. And but he's, he's doing it for a serious reason. Say anything about logical positive. And in fact, 
they mention him. So in one of the quotes I want to read is, they quote a new conductor problem and say, welcome to freshman philosophy. They're like, we know about the new conductor problem, and this has been dealt with elsewhere. But there's no point. It hasn't been dealt with elsewhere. They just say that, and then only three or four pages later, they say, now, we scientists have a, you know, we have a very serious epistemology. They say, we take the epistemology of no nonsense logical positive. So I'm reading this like how you can't expect any of these philosophers to take you seriously if you're just going to dismiss David Hume as if he never existed and continue to say logical positive, which all of our freshman undergraduates know, anyone who's taking the intro to philosophy course knows this nonsense. So the West has systematically undermined the foundations and the possibilities of science based on unbelieving anti-theistic propositions. And the big point that I want, that I hope you could see from what I presented today is that the philosophers have used human reason to destroy human reason. So the, the postmodern skeptics of today, their irrationalism is established on a foundation. Their irrationalism is established on a foundation of rationalism. They use human reason to destroy human reason. The scientist's rationalism is on a foundation of irrationalism. They pretend to create a human and they specifically say logical positivism, which is irrational. So that is what I call the epistemological crisis of American University. And as Christians, we have something to say to these, as we talked about earlier. And um, I, anytime this comes up, I, my first question is, what do you do about the conductor problem? You're a scientist. What's your answer to that? And, uh, and they, they just don't have that. So, that's it. Are there any questions? Yeah, right. Um, okay, well, praise our Lord for giving us wisdom and discernment. We continue to honor of that and boldness to defend things like this that when they come up. And, you know, from a discernment standpoint, if somebody says something to you, that doesn't stop them. Because you intuitively know because God's given you this. It doesn't mean you have to have all the facts and the answers, but at least when it comes to referencing anything in the gospel, then we should be equipped to defend that, no matter what. Any other quick questions or comments before we close? Father, we thank you and praise you that you are a God of order and that you created all things and created them well. Uh, we do ask that you would give us wisdom as we go out into the world and as we engage with um, people around that have taken wrong stances of science and philosophy. Help us to have gentleness and patience and point to Jesus Christ uh, and the free offer of the gospel. Um, we thank you for the time that we can spend together. We ask you would give us a good afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen.